This is an ABC podcast. Broad charges in and he drives and drives sumptuously for four. A spanking cover drive whistles away to the boundary. I think she believes she can. One summer. She's just giving this everything at the moment, punishing. Every summer. A big, airy cover drive. It's one of those shots that look fabulous when it comes off. It's also one of the shots that I'm afraid look pretty stark when it doesn't. Shane Warne rubs the hand on the grass, takes a very deep breath. The dancer's changing. One, two. He's very thrilled with himself. Compton comes in again, bowling to Hassett. But the dance forever the same. Quite a cluster of fields around the batsman. And here we are, just like you folks, waiting for the run that will give the Australian captain his hundred. This is Everlasting Summer, the story of cricket on the ABC. I'm Amanda Smith, starting the series in this first episode in the 1930s. Hammond coming in, bowling over the wicket to, to Bradman, and Bradman attempts to turn this one to, to fine leg, but it appeared as though he failed to connect the ball going off his pads with Ames, the wicketkeeper, racing across to field the ball. This is the earliest call of test cricket that's still in the ABC archives. It's not from the famous, notorious Bodyline series of 1932-1933, as the names of the players might suggest. This is 1937. In the stand, the upper tier there, you see the ladies waving the fans uh, vigorously. Plenty of humidity in the atmosphere today. Perspiration rolling freely off the cricketers who are doing the hard work out there in the field. O'Reilly is ready again to bowl to Leyland. There's no ABC commentary of the Bodyline series that still exists, alas, but the memory and the significance of that infamous series echoes down the decades. All those involved might be dead, but the voices of the players, like Don Bradman, Bill O'Reilly and Vic Richardson, they still resonate. Unless you saw it, you could not actually believe that anything could be so bad for the game as this well, they call it body line, but I'd put it a bit higher, headline bowling. It's just blue murder. It was certainly a very nasty time. It didn't in any way contravene the rules of cricket, but it did worse than that. It contravened the ethics of cricket. If body line bowling had not been curbed, I have no doubt that it would have brought about a cessation of test cricket and seriously jeopardised the future of the game itself. But bad news is always good news for a media organisation. So it was amazing good fortune for the newly formed Australian Broadcasting Commission that the first test cricket it covered was this Bodyline series. But of course, radio existed in Australia before 1932. Cricket certainly did, as did cricket broadcasting. Sport and media historian Michael Ward says even so, that summer has a special significance. All of those things did exist before 1932-33, but what happened in that year was the combination of a series of factors. So we have, for the first time in Australia, public service broadcasting, which augmented the existing, pretty much localised commercial broadcasting. We have, for the first time in Australia, a national network of 12 stations from Rockhampton round to Perth, and the delivery of a national service that would knit the nation together. It was a very conscious policy. And within a few months, it undertook its first test cricket broadcast, daily broadcast, in which the ABC acknowledged 
that cricket broadcasting, sport in general and cricket in particular, was a core part of its national identity framework. And that just happened to be the Bodyline series. Yes, which remains probably the most controversial test series in cricket history in a game that is not without its controversy. Before we get on to more about the Bodyline series and what its national broadcast by the ABC meant, it's worth going back a bit to when this wondrous new media, the radio, arrived in Australia and when it brought cricket into people's homes. Jim Maxwell is the voice of ABC Cricket in the modern era. 1923 was the first year that there were broadcasts, transmissions of events from Phillip Street in Sydney and it wasn't long after that that the various stations that got these A-class licences from the Postmaster General's Department before the ABC came along in 1932 thought that some of these sporting events were worth covering and in 1924-25 there was an Ashes series in Australia and in the third test in Adelaide the first ball-by-ball commentary was given on a, a commercial station called 5CL in Adelaide by Bill Smallicombe, who actually described almost the entire test match, which must have worn him out because it was a timeless test. It went for seven days. And given that also in those days very few people actually had receivers, what they did was burst the broadcast out from loudspeakers all around Adelaide, and uh, the people were really taken by these broadcasts. Now, Smallicombe did the first ball-by-ball commentary, but Edgar Mayne on 3AR in Melbourne in that same series, and later in the year, Len Watt and Monty Noble on what became the ABC in Sydney did some commentary of an, a test trial between Australia and the rest at the SCG. But I think Bill Smallicombe takes the credit for originating ball-by-ball commentary not only in Australia but in the world because the BBC weren't doing ball-by-ball commentary until 1934. One of those very early Australian commentators Jim Maxwell mentioned was Len or Lionel Watt. Lionel Watt started describing the cricket as a result of a conversation he'd struck up with the manager of a commercial radio station about what he thought the public might want in a cricket broadcast. And the next thing I knew was that I was at the cricket ground sitting in front of a microphone with a technician saying, you're on the air, talk. So I started off, as the umpires took the field, discussed the wind and other weather conditions, and when play began, went on describing each ball of the over. I kept on going. A little later, a message came from the studio saying, that's what we want, keep going. And thus began the ball-for-ball broadcasting, which has become a feature of all first-class cricket. It caught the imagination of the public at once. Afterwards, the Australian Broadcasting Company was formed. They continued the broadcasts, and then, when the Australian Broadcasting Commission came into being in 1932, they developed it. I did all matches for nine years, including the famous Bodyline series of tests of 1932-33, which were so full of bitterness. So what was all the acrimony about with this cricket series? Well, Bodyline describes a particular kind of bowling with a particular placement of fielders. And why did the England team adopt it? 
In a word, Bradman, the most prolific run scorer the world has ever seen. Now, I was in Canada when the English team was announced and I promptly forecast that we would see an avalanche of bumpers because the team was loaded with fast bowlers. But what I did not foresee was the use of them in association with a packed leg side field. The two combined made it a clearly preconceived plan of action and as such, I believed it was extremely detrimental to the game of cricket. Harold Larwood was the main fast bowler for England. Our sole object was in Kirby Bradman because we'd had this experience in 1930 with him. He, uh, he absolutely murdered us. But the last time we played at the Oval, there was some rain got on the wicket and the ball was flying about and I saw Bradman flinching. And uh, we thought, he may disagree, but we thought his, his leg side attack, he was very open to it. So we thought we'd all give it a go when we were out here and we were successful with it. And then after uh, we found out that other people were the same, one or two of them, so we, we kept at it. Bill O'Reilly was a player in the Australian side. We players didn't refer to it as body line. This term has grown out of that period, but we were referring to it as the scone theory. Scone, of course, was the colloquialism used for your head and one that bounced we used to call it a sconner and if you got hit you said you were sconned. The risk of injury was extremely great and um, well some players were injured as you well know and a great many others escaped injury by um, sheer luck and that's all. It wasn't just the type of bowling that made it dangerous though. The field was disposed with five in close, which meant it was murder to try to glance the ball in any shape or form, because they'd catch it. There were two men out in the fence. Now each one of those could run 40 yards either way in the time that a good old hook shot would come to, which meant that you couldn't glance the ball and you couldn't really get under it and give it a whack unless you hit it clean over the fence. Now, that doesn't happen very often. So a batsman realised He'd better not use the bat at all while they did this. So all he could do, as soon as it came, was go down. But the man never lived who could consistently and successfully combat the 1932-33 bodyline attack as exploded by England that summer. We'd sit in the dressing room and a batsman would pick up his bat and walk out. Well, you'd say to him, good luck, mate. And you'd say it with all the tenderness, the sentimentality of a chap who was going to walk in and face up to something where you might never see him again. That was the feeling that you had. And then we'd sit along the windows at the Sydney Creek ground and nothing would be said and then suddenly you'd say, gee, did you see that one? Using that kind of intimidation, England won the first test in Sydney. The second test was played in Melbourne and won by Australia. The trouble really fired up with the third test in Adelaide, especially when the Australian captain, Bill Woodfull, went down. Well, Billy got a very bad crack over the heart. There was an orthodox field at the time and the ball rose sharply off the pitch and it really was a bad blow. He fell like the proverbial bag of potatoes. That, of course, was a nasty incident, but that didn't cause the trouble. The trouble occurred 
when Woodfull eventually recovered and took strike again. And uh, he came up, got stood up again. He had a swing or two with the bat to see that all muscles were still able to function. And then he shaped up again. And as soon as the shape up came, Jardine switched to a bodyline field and the first ball that Larwood bowled to him afterwards was a bumper straight at him. That was what riled the crowd and started all the barracking. Douglas Jardine was the England captain. The incident was a regrettable public expression by Jardine that he was quite unmoved by physical injury to a batsman or public opinion. Now Woodfull uh, was a man of great dignity whose bearing throughout that series won the admiration of the whole cricketing world, including his opponents at the time. And the public were very incensed that he should be the object of such tactics immediately after receiving a terrible blow over the heart. Now, it was the timing of the move which the public felt exposed so clearly what was in Jardine's mind. The twelfth man for the Australian side was Leo O'Brien. He was the only person who overheard the famous dressing room exchange between the injured Australian captain, Bill Woodfull, and the England team management. And Bill had gone in, we heard the shower go on, and I think it was either Vic Christian or Jack Ryder said to me, you better go and see how Bill is, Leo. So in I walked, and Bill was coming out from under the shower, toweling his hair, and uh, I said to him, how are you, Bill? You could see the red marks over his ribs and his heart that he'd run into one or two nasty ones. And uh, uh, he said, Leo, he said, there's some awful things going on out there. And uh, just then, I heard footsteps and I turned round on my right and in walked Mr Warner and Mr Pallet. And uh, Warner said, we called in to see how you are, Mr Woodfull. And Bill just looked, he said, Mr Warner, he said, there are two teams out there in that field. He said, and one is playing cricket and the other is not. He said, that's all I have to say, good afternoon. They turned on heel and out they went. All this came at a time when relations between Australia and England in a political and economic sense were seriously on the slide and causing Australia some real difficulties. Oh, really tough time. Brian Stoddart is the co-author of Cricket and Empire. And it's accentuated by the fact that most people who even thought about it, either directly or indirectly, always assumed that cricket was the great bridge between the countries. Cricket was the one thing that would all solve all problems, and here it was. It was almost the biggest aggravation of all. Because what was happening, for example, was a stoush over the appointment of an Australian-born Governor-General who also happened to be Jewish. Sir Uh, Isaac Isaacs. Yes. There was a problem over the gold standard in 32-33. There was a problem over Britain recalling its loans to Australia, which really helped precipitate the Great Depression from 29 through to 32-33-34. Very, very down time in the Australian psyche. So that the whole Anglo-Australian relationship, almost within a five-year period, went through the toughest thing it had ever seen, probably. And that was all bad enough. The economic economics were bad, the politics were bad, the social relations weren't that terrific. And then along comes this cricket tour, which everybody was looking forward to almost as the great salvation. And suddenly it turns into a nightmare as well. It was shocking for test matches and it ruined the 
feeling between the Australians and the Englishmen as regards uh, the fellowship that usually exists in these games. And it was so bad that uh, the position between England and Australia was entirely ruptured. Vic Richardson, who played in the Bodyline series and became a commentator for the ABC and commercial radio stations. He was also the grandfather of another famous Australian cricketer, Ian Chappell. When Vic died in 1969, I would have been, where are we, 26. I'd just become vice-captain of Australia. So, you know, I was old enough to have uh, conversations with him and some of those revolved around Bodyline. And not only was Vic, did he play in the body line, but he was vice-captain as well. So he, you know, he had an important role to play. He often told me about Bill Woodfull, the captain. Now, Bill was a very well-respected man. The Australian players, and certainly Vic, admired Woodfull. But one of the differences was Woodfull refused, flatly refused, to bowl body line at the England players. Vic wanted to hand it back. And Vic's theory was, we give it back to him, this will stop in a very short time. That was his nature, because he wasn't a turn-the-other-cheek man. You slap him on the cheek, he's going to fight back. And I certainly inherited that trait from uh, from Vic. I think the apple hasn't fallen far from the tree. <laughs> Uh, Another thing that I remember Vic telling me was he said, you probably know from looking at the footage that Larwood is quick, which I did, because you look at the footage, you see the wicketkeeper standing a long way back and taking the ball as it's still climbing above the keeper's head. So immediately you know he's quick. But what Vic used to say to me was, what you didn't know was that Larwood was very, very accurate as well. And I think that bothered the Australian batsman, the fact that not only was he quick, but he was very accurate. And it wasn't until years after I'd retired, I suddenly thought to myself, well, here's Vic telling me that he wanted to give it back, but he wasn't allowed to by the Australian captain. But here I am, captain in 74-5, with Dennis Silly and Jeff Thompson in the Australian side, two bloody quick bowlers, and suddenly we're on the handing out end. And I thought to myself, hey, Vic, I think we just even things up for you. (laughs) All right, so let me ask you this then. In the context of the cricket you played, was Bodyline all that bad? Well, there's a little book that uh, Alan Kipax, who happened to be a mate of uh, Vic's and also played a little bit in the Bodyline series, and he wrote this book called Anti-Bodyline. And in it, he said, without the field placings, we would have accepted Bodyline. But if the administrators didn't want those field placings, they should have been smart enough to write something in the uh, laws saying that those field placings aren't allowed. Now, did I agree with the field placings? Probably not. But could you castigate Jardine for doing it? No. Commentators for the ABC's coverage of the Bodyline series included Lionel Watt, 
Charles Moses, Mel Morris and Monty Noble. And from the extraordinary circumstances of these matches, a long relationship between cricket and the ABC was forged. Fraser Andrews is an historian who's considered what the coming together of cricket and radio in Australia meant in 1932-33. It was a coming together of a new technology combined with a series that, for other reasons, turned out to be a very memorable one. And this first live broadcast of international cricket by the ABC meant that, for the first time, people spread around Australia could hear what was happening. But conversely, the fact that it was broadcast actually encouraged more people to attend. So not only did you get more Australians engaged with the sport, it actually encouraged them to go along to the game as well. It was important for rural Australia as well people who would otherwise not have been able to go to the games or would maybe have only have got information about the games through newspaper reports afterwards, they were now able to participate directly in the game through listening to it. I wonder, though, would the Bodyline series have become so much of a preoccupation of the nation or, or as controversial if it hadn't been able to be broadcast around the country by the ABC? I... Th- I think it probably would still have been controversial in the sense that it's still being heavily reported in the news media, but undoubtedly the immediacy that is brought by the radio broadcasts, the fact that people could literally hear what was going on in the game, you know, that they could hear the tension, they could hear the excitement. So it was heightening that controversy. Well, one of the newspapers of the day, the Argus, complained that comment of every phase of the game has been broadcast so continuously that the public mind has become obsessed by the controversy. Yeah, and and what it did do was led to a huge demand for broadcast cricket and the immediacy that having access to scores and things like that, the match relays... Um, But it was a huge boon for the ABC as well because it led to a surge in demand for radio licences. Yes. Now, we we should note here that radio for a very long time wasn't actually what we now call free-to-air, was it? You had to pay a licence fee to the government and that's what funded the ABC. Yeah. So the ABC owes a lot to cricket. Yes, it owes a lot to cricket and it owes a lot to um, Harold Larwood, (laughs) I suppose. (laughs) Well, England won that Bodyline series, which, remember, took place during the Great Depression. In 1932, a third of the workforce was unemployed. And yet, despite the tough times and losing the cricket, according to sports historian Bob Stewart, this test series paradoxically confirmed cricket in Australia as having a role that went beyond sport. Well, it was mythological and it was really a turning point in the game in terms of media and strengthened the belief that, yes, we are a nation and we do use sport as a way of developing national pride and particularly cricket because it was clear that if you're going to have a national game, then the only one that would really qualify was cricket. It was played around the nation. We had international contests, not just with England, but with South Africa, India, West Indies. And it was great for building up national pride. But as well as that, it really reinforced the idea that the ABC was going to become 
the home of cricket. For radio, it was certainly the, the home of cricket. So all of that happened, uh, just an amazing series. So it captured the imagination of, of a society that were doing it hard. Next time on Everlasting Summer, when cricket commentary on the ABC gets really kooky and make-believe is involved, how to broadcast from the other side of the world when the technology isn't up to it. The synthetic tests of 1934 and 1938 and the beginning of a 50-year career behind the microphone for Alan McGilvray. Everlasting Summer is a production of ABC Sport and ABC RN. I'm Amanda Smith. And to hear every episode, search for Everlasting Summer on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.